We're going to read scripture here from John chapter 15, verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would, have, they would not have sinned. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their scripture might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Let's pray. God, we just welcome you to be amongst us this morning. We thank you that we can gather here in freedom. We can gather here uh, to be able to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who reigns over all. And we welcome you and we ask you to be amongst us. We ask you to bless this time. We ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start by telling you that I believe we are... Oh, that's worse. I'm going to switch that back. Sorry. Um, I'm going to start by telling you that uh, we, I believe that we are creatures of comfort. That's just who we are. We, we don't like suffering. We don't like hardship. We don't like difficulty. We don't like pain. And even me just saying these things, or maybe that scripture we read earlier that Colin read for us, as you read that, you're kind of like starting to get a little bit anxious hearing it. But the truth is, the reality is that anytime you open this Bible and you start to take in the whole counsel of what it says, all that it says, what you're going to hear is that God promises his followers suffering. Hardship is an inevitable part of the Christian life. I didn't really know what that word inevitable meant, by the way, until um, I was about 11, 12. Somewhere in there, I, uh, I learned what this word was because there was this uh, Christian musician, comedian guy that my parents thought it would be good for us to go and see. So we went off to this show, and I was like this, you know, 11, 12-year-old, and this guy had his, his song that kind of made him famous called It's Inevitable. I'll give you a few lines from the song. So it's, it went a little bit something like this. It's inevitable that when you wake in the morning, the sun will be shining unless it's raining. It's inevitable that if a song has no music or word, it won't be so entertaining. And so the song is ridiculous. It goes on like this. But in that moment, I'm like, oh, that's what inevitable means. It means something certain to happen. And what I'm saying this morning is something that's not very funny, the, the, the fact that it's inevitable that as a Christ follower, we will be guaranteed hardships in life. How do I know that? Well, the scripture, like I said, tells us that. Let me give you a few examples. James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience trials. It doesn't say if you experience a trial, it doesn't say maybe when, it says whenever. That word scares me. Next scripture, Luke 9, 23, Jesus is talking here. He turns to a group of people who are kind of following him, and he says, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And even the scripture we read today, John 15, let me reread some of it for you. I'd encourage you to turn there with me, by the way. We're going to be coming back here a lot. John 15, 
verse 18 and then verse 20 as well. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's talking to people who follow him. And so I can't escape the reality of what the scripture says and what Jesus says. And I can't really hold that intention either with what I hear sometimes Christians proclaiming from a pulpit or proclaiming in their books saying, you know, if you are a Jesus follower, everything's going to be great. It'll be, you know, strawberries and rainbows and lollipops and all that sort of good stuff. Right? Like, I mean, that's what's painted sometimes from the pulpit. But that's not what we're promised. That's not what the scripture says. That's not what Christian history even tells us. If you go back and look over the last 2,000 years at Christians, what you're going to find time and time again is people who love God and follow him, yes, but also who have gone through some really difficult things. An example of that is a guy who lived just the last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 into the German Empire. And this guy was born into a pretty privileged family. His family was well-to-do. His parents were incredibly intelligent. And not surprisingly, he too was incredibly intelligent. And so he decided, um, somewhat to the dismay of his parents, to study theology. And as he studied God at an intellectual level, he uh, actually did really well with it. Like he he did well with his study, top of his class, all that sort of stuff. Went on to like teach and be at a level of a professor. But as he started to do that and travel and to experience life and to be around other Christians as this theologian, he started to realize that some people, these theological ideas weren't just ideas, they really impacted people's lives. And that some people like were passionate and um, you know, had this fire and this love for God and he saw that and he was like, I want that too. And so in this moment, it's really cool looking at his life because you see this guy who has this incredible intellect and understanding of scriptures and theology who all of a sudden gets like what it actually means in practice. And so in his life, you see this coming together of these two things at the same time as the Nazi regime starts to rise to power in Germany. All of this is like this perfect storm in his life. And so this guy starts to experience persecution because as the Nazi regime reigns, ra- rises to power, Hitler isn't just interested in politics. He wants control of everything, including religion, including the church. And so he's starting to mandate what they can preach and what they can't preach. Hitler is started to seen as the ultimate authority, not God. And Bonhoeffer pushes against that. He's like, no, that's not right. God's our ultimate authority. He wrote a very famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. And one of the most famous quotes, if not the most famous quote from that book is this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, when you are called into a relationship with God, what he's calling you to is to come and to die. Now that may seem a bit extreme, but with what we've already considered this morning, I don't think it is. We're not in Nazi Germany, so some of you are like, okay, Cool, Harley, like, I, I'm not experiencing what you're talking about here. I don't live in Nazi Germany. What, is, what does this have to do with us living here in Austin, Texas today? What does persecution look like for us today? And so as you consider that this morning, I want to answer with two th- thoughts. Firstly this, persecution looks like this, being misunderstood. And then secondly, being rejected. 
And I would say those two problems or those two facets of being persecuted are scalable. What I mean by that is that that could go anywhere from something pretty small scale, which is probably what we experience most commonly here in Austin, Texas in this current age and period of time. But that could scale all the way up to like something pretty violent and hard, maybe like somewhere else in the world right now, okay? So being misunderstood, being rejected. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. So <clears throat> a couple of years ago, through a hobby that I have, I met two guys. On the same day, I met two guys. One of the guys that I met, he went on to become a really good friend of mine and a uh, great guy, like him a lot. He's not a Christian, um, but we've got to, you know, interact in our families, you know, get to get together and do all that sort of stuff. But there's been moments in our friendship where there's been misunderstanding. Like he has misunderstood me because I'm a Christian and because of what I believe and how that informs how I live. For example, like he, he misunderstands sometimes like how I interact with my wife or how I interact with my kids. He looks at it and he's like, that's weird. Like, or how I interact with women in general. Like that's just weird to him. And I have to experience some misunderstanding there. That's just part of it. He misunderstands even what I do here with our church. Like he's, he's sat down with me and he's like, so what's the next step in the church? Like do you get your own church or do you get your whole you know, group of churches? Like he's trying to figure out the, the corporate ladder inside of a church. Like he's, it's misunderstood. So there's been that relationship and that friendship. The funny thing is, I contrast that with the other guy that I met the exact same day. That guy got to kind of, I, I've seen him, you know, I, I continue to see him from time to time, but he has, for the most part, rejected a relationship with me. He knows who I am, he knows what I stand for, and when he's seen that, he's kind of like, that's, that's not for me. Like, I don't, I don't want to be around this guy. He's kind of weird, he thinks differently, he acts differently. He doesn't just jump in with everything we're saying and doing. And that's kind of, I think, been an offense to him. And so he's kind of pushed, pushed away on, on relationship. And that's, that, that is what it is. And again, these are very small things, but that's misunderstanding and rejection. Now, again, this is scalable and it can get a lot more intense in different environments and circumstances. Some people I've talked to have uh, had jobs that are presented in front of them that like is a promotion inside of their company. And when they have that job that's put there in front of them, everybody inside the company is like, you're the perfect person for that job. Why aren't you taking that job? And as you look at it as a Christian, you're like, well, it's going to require more of me away from my family. And it's going to require that I actually have less time to commit to my things at church. Like, so I'm, I'm not up for that. Like, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I think God's calling me to. And in that moment, if you make a decision like that, I know a couple of guys who've done this, when they make a decision like that, they experience being misunderstood and being rejected. Like that's pretty common. Again, this can scale all the way up. It changes. Persecution looks different in different contexts, cultures, and ages. And it can scale all the way up to having somebody point a gun at you and say, what do you believe? Like, I mean, it can get extreme to that level. So why do we have it? Why do we have persecution? Let's go back to John 15 and have a look at this. Verse 18. John 15, 18, where we started. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Lots of hate. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but, have cho- but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Christians experience persecution because they are hated by the world. Let me clarify that a little bit. 
When I say persecution here this morning, I'm not talking about like suffering when like somebody, you or somebody close to you experiences sickness or, you know, somebody you know gets cancer or something like that. That's, that's suffering and that's hard, but that's not persecution specifically like being hated, what we're talking about here. We're not also talking about when somebody in the church or another Christian disagrees with you and you guys really are struggling to come to terms on something. Again, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the world hating you. What do we mean by this term, the world? There's a guy that I respect who's written some commentary on John. He defines it like this. He says, the world refers to the created moral order in active rebellion against God. Now, that may sound a little wordy, but the creative moral order, what that means is humankind who are in rebellion against God. He goes on and says this, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom loyalty is due. What he's basically doing is painting this picture and saying, when we talk about the world, what we're talking about is a group of rebels inside of a kingdom. The kingdom is owned and run by Jesus. He is king of kings and lord of lords of the kingdom. And yet there's this group, which is humanity, that has rebelled because of sin against them. And when you're a Christian, you're plucked from that. You actually have allegiance back to the king and the world looks at you and hates you. Why does it hate us specifically though? Let's explore that a little bit. The world hates Jesus and his followers because their word and their works offend them. Two things, their word and their works offend them. Now, this is kind of interesting because I don't think Jesus is a very hateable guy. Like, think about Jesus. He's this guy who's, uh, you know, walking along and healing people. Like, that's not a hateable thing. He, uh, he's got all the kids running up to him and he's like welcoming, welcoming them. Like, not a hateable thing. He's, he's coming along and he's feeding people. He's, he's bringing wine to the party. Like, I mean, he's not a hateable character when you look at those things. And so Jesus actually acknowledges that it doesn't really make sense. He's like, it doesn't make sense that people hate me. Look at verse 25 with me again. It says this, but this happened, we'll talk about what this is, so that the statement written in, this, in their scripture might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. What's he talking about here? Well, what's he, what he's talking about is he's saying, like, there was no reason for me to be hated. He's quoting Psalms 69, verse 4. He's quoting a psalm and saying, this psalm is actually about me. People hated me for no reason. And, and you're like, okay, so it doesn't make a lot of sense that they hated him, but it kind of does make sense when you start to look at what was in the previous verses. When you consider that Jesus' word was truth and that truthful word offended people. Look back at verse 22 with me. Verse 22 says this. If I had not come and spoken, there's his word, to them, they would not have sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. What he's saying here is when I speak, when my word was spoken, people found it offensive. What did Jesus say? Well, he said things like this. I'm from God. I'm God's son. He also said things like this. John 14, 6. We use this a lot, but it's a great scripture. He says, I, Jesus, am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some people hear that and they're like, oh, that sounds pretty. That's nice. That's not a pretty and nice verse. That's an exclusive verse. 
And either you embrace that as truth and you cling to that and say, yes, this is good, or you're offended by it. You see, Jesus' word is either truth and enlightenment and beauty to you, or it's offensive. There isn't a middle ground. His word divides people. And we see that in the text. We see it even today. You see, what I'd say to you is this, that Jesus' word did and does offend people. It wasn't just then, even today. Me reading that scripture for you today, John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through him. Some people, even in this room, probably have an exception to that. But not only does it make sense that the world hated Jesus because of his word, Jesus goes on, he's not finished, and he tells us that people also hated him because of his works. Let's read verse 24 together. Verse 24 says this, If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, works, when he says that, by the way, he means miracles, they would, sorry, they would not have sin. Now they have seen, as in seen the miracles, and hated both me and my father. What he's saying here is my works prove who I am, who I say I am, and people don't want to believe my word. They don't want to believe my works. They hate the proof. They hate me because of what I'm doing. And so the point here is this. If you're a Jesus follower, you're also going to be lumped in with Jesus and be hated because of the things that you say and because of the things that you do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said this. The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. So to put it plainly, to follow Christ When we do that, our word and our works offend people. And I would actually expand on it in this way. The likelihood is that as you grow into being more and more like Jesus, which, by the way, we all should be doing if we are Christians, the call isn't to come and to be a Christian. The call is to come and to grow in Christ-likeness. So there's meant to be a growth in that, like looking more and more like Jesus. And as that happens, the likelihood is that as we look more and more like Jesus, we too at the same time are going to increasingly be hated by the world. That's not an exciting message this morning, but I believe it's true that as you increasingly grow in looking like Jesus, the likelihood is you're increasingly going to be persecuted. I hear myself say that and I'm like, I don't like that. I want people to like me. I want to be a likable person. I want to please man. I don't want to be offensive. You see, some of us want to be a Christ follower and keep the world happy too. It's like having two things at the same time simultaneously. Can't I keep everybody happy and be a Christ follower at the same time? I want to eat my cake, but I want to keep it as well. Like, that, that, that doesn't work. There's examples that I can think of of what this looks like. And I'll say examples even in my own life of what this looks like at times. When I, when we, shy away from having a spiritual conversation with someone, that's an example of that. Because what we fear is 
It may sound extreme to say we fear being persecuted, but if being persecuted means being rejected or misunderstood, yes, absolutely. I fear that at times. I've been in conversations where the Holy Spirit has a glowing neon light saying, here is an opportunity, and I'm like, er, like, get me out of here. Like, I don't want to do this right now. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be rejected by this person. Sometimes it looks like this. I, I, I defer, we defer from prayer because we're scared that it could be awkward. There's somebody near us in a restaurant, they may see us praying. There's somebody, a friend who's not a Christian that if I told them I'm praying for them, they may think that's weird. Or if I actually prayed out loud for them while they were right there, they may think that's really weird. They may misunderstand me, they may reject me. Another way this plays out is if I or somebody was to come and to ask your, your co-workers or your neighbors about you, and they're like, wait a sec, they're a Christian? I didn't know that. They go to church? Like, I didn't know that. Like, if that's the play out, like, the people closest to us should know what's most important to us. God doesn't speak very kindly to those of us who try to pull off stunts like this, where we're trying to be friends with the world and at the same time be the Christ follower. James 4 verse 4 says this, this is strong, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. 1 John 2 verse 15 says this, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Ouch. So some of you may be sitting here this morning and you're like, okay, Harley, why would I want to be a Christian? Like you're not painting like, where do I sign up? You know, like, like that doesn't sound good. You're promising me persecution and you're telling me even if I am a Christ follower, I'm going to struggle to want to be loved by the world. Like this sounds really difficult. And if all we were promised in this life as Christ followers was hatred and persecution, yeah, the outlook would be pretty bleak. Like I absolutely agree and hear that. But in Christ, what I want you to see this morning is we have so much more than just the promise of persecution. We have many promises. I want to highlight just two thoughts to you in thinking about this. The first one is this. Not only in Christ that we promise persecution, in Christ we can have perspective. In Christ we can have perspective. You see, this call that we have for persecution that we've been talking about all, all morning is not a call in isolation. You, when the only... <laughs> Being persecuted is not the only thing we're promised. That would be pretty bleak if that's, that's the only thing we were promised. I remember uh, when we found out, five years ago, we found out that we were having twins. And uh, we have a one-year-old, and we find out we're having twins, and it's kind of like, woo, you know, like, good grief. Like, okay. Um, and in our minds at that moment, we're like, okay, this is overwhelming, in our minds, we're thinking about diapers, we're thinking about changing and feeding and like double everything for the rest of our lives. Like, I mean, like, you know, all of this is coming to mind. Thankfully, we were surrounded by a great group of friends 
who were encouraging us and reminding us to look at the bigger picture. And what often they were saying is, how exciting, what a blessing, how incredible to have two like little friends that will grow up right beside each other and experience stuff together. What a unique perspective. And they talked about all the blessings that would come from that. And that's exactly what we needed in that moment. We needed the bigger picture to see what it would be like. And I can tell you, here we are five years in. It's awesome. I love it. Ask me eight months in, I may not have said the same thing. But five years in, like, they're not five yet, but soon. Uh, It's awesome. It's been great. And we needed reminding of the bigger picture. And what you need this morning is a reminder of the bigger picture. Yes, we're looking at eight verses that talk about persecution. But think about the context. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we try to be very good when we get up here to communicate. We try to be very good about talking about the context. I've purposely kept it till now. I kind of want it to be like a really fun thing that I bust out right now because I want you to see that the context for this scripture is some of the most loving and incredible verses in all of the Bible. Think about this scripture as a whole that we're in where Jesus is talking in these last moments with his disciples. What's he been saying? Well, just in the previous verses, he's been saying, hey, I love you. He said love many more times than even he said hate in this passage. He said, love, love, love. I love you. The Father loves you. And he says, when you love me, we're going <coughs> to excuse me, connect in like a vine and you can experience growth and life and vitality. If you look to the next verses, what he's about to say is the Holy Spirit is going to come to you, just like he's talked about in chapter 14. And he said, he's going to counsel you and guide you and lead you and be an advocate for you. So the context is we zoom back out and say, yes, there's persecution, but zoom back out. Think about the blessings this morning. Think about all that Christ offers us, just even in this passage, even in this text. One thing I'd like you to consider too is as as you zoom out, I want you to think about this. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christ follower, and I'm not going to assume everybody here is a Christ follower, The inevitable, we've used this word, inevitable realities without Christ are pretty harsh. You are separated from God. Your destiny is death and not much more. But when Christ purchased our reconciliation, when he died on the cross, he purchased reconciliation, a right relationship with God the Father, And he gifted us with the Holy Spirit. There's a whole bunch in all of what I just said there. But what that means for us is a whole bunch of new inevitable realities, which include love, acceptance, life, hope, joy, peace, and much, much more. That's just the start of it. I could list list off scripture after scripture after scripture today that talks about all these inevitable realities, these inevitable blessings that come and lay over the inevitable realities we have without Christ. So zoom out today and see the perspective that we, sh- we should all be seeing. The second thing that I'd like to highlight as we ask about, okay, this persecution stuff is this. In Christ, we can have purpose. And maybe I should say purpose even in our persecution. Some of you may be thinking, okay, I get that I should have perspective. Let's zoom out and see that I'm not just promised persecution. There's other stuff too. But you may be asking, why? Why? I've got a a six-year-old who loves to ask why. Like I hear that all the time. And in some ways, it's a good question for us to ask this morning. What is God's purpose in persecution? And I'm going to say this as a little disclaimer here. 
we may not know. We may not know the full picture. We may not even know part of the picture, this side of heaven. But there are some things we can know. And I'd like to answer this, what's God's purpose in persecution, by looking at Jesus specifically. You see, Jesus was about to, right after he said these words to his disciples, he was about to experience persecution to an ultimate degree. What was God's purpose in the persecution that Jesus experienced? Two things. Firstly this, it was our good. Jesus was persecuted, and God's purpose in that was our good. Like I mentioned very briefly a second ago, when Jesus was persecuted and died for the sins of the world, all of a sudden, humanity was reconciled with God. No longer did we have to offer animal sacrifices to try and get some sort of semblance of a relationship with God. All of a sudden, the temple curtain literally was torn, and we had access to God. That was an incredible thing, an incredible moment. His persecution, his death and, and torturous death was for our good. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, is not, it's not just for our good, it's also for His glory. It's for God's glory. What I want you to see here is that when Jesus went to that cross, when He died on that cross, God was glorified. He was pointed to as being a gracious, redeeming God. All the things that he'd said about and said that he was, this gracious, loving, slow to anger God, that was all proved on the cross. And when it was proved on the cross, what happened was this moment of time was made where we're going to look back on that for the rest of eternity and celebrate how glorious God is. For the rest of eternity, we're going to look back on that and say, God is glorious because of what Jesus did in that moment of persecution. So the persecution resulted in our good and God's glory. And I would argue with you today, or I'd encourage you with today, this thought that our persecution too, on a smaller scale, is for our good and for God's glory. Romans 8 is helpful on this, and we don't have time to jump into all the intricacies of this. But Romans 8, 17 says, We suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. We suffer with him. These hardships and these persecutions, being misunderstood, being rejected, that happens so that we also can be glorified with him. Romans 8, 28, one you may be familiar with. We know that all things work together for the good, and I've put in there ultimate good, because if you read the footnote, that's what it actually means. The ultimate good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. What that means is that God is working in all of the things in our life, including being misunderstood, including being rejected and hated. The cool thing that we must realize too is that when we are misunderstood, when we are rejected, if we stand firm in Christ in that moment, what we're doing is we're glorifying God by pointing to him. We are witnessing When we do that, we're saying God is good. When you stand in the face of being misunderstood, when you stand in the face of being rejected by Christ's power, by Christ's strength, what you're doing is you're a big billboard pointing towards God, glorifying Him in that moment of hardship and suffering and persecution. So if all this is true, all the things we've talked about this morning are true, how should we respond Three main thoughts for you. The first one is this. If you're not a Christian, 
I'd like to ask you to respond, if these things are true, with this thought. I'd like to invite you to come and to die. And I know that sounds weird, that sounds a bit morbid, but hear me out. This is what I'm saying. Luke 9, I read, read part of that earlier, verse 23 I read, that says, if anyone wants to come with me, this is Jesus speaking, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know what the very next verse says? It says this, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What he's saying is, when you come and die, when you give your life away to me, when you say, God, no longer my will, no longer my agenda, when I give that away, what that means in that moment is that we can actually experience life. It's in death, in giving away, that we experience life. We're going to have a baptism here in a little bit. And when somebody's baptized, it symbolizes that very thing, somebody dying. That's why, why we put them in the water, to say the old life is gone and the new life is coming. And so if you're not a Christian, I know that some of this may sound like kind of like pictures and words and images, but these help us to understand what's going on at a heart inside level. And I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, make that decision today to come and to follow Christ. Lose your life, give it to him, and you will find it. Jesus was persecuted for this very reason, so that you can have life in him. And so if you're, if you're a, not a Christian, that's, that's the response for you today. Come and die. Second response. If you are a Christian, this is for you. I'd like to encourage you, as we've looked at this this morning, to stand courageously. To have courage to reject the world. I don't know about if this kind of resonated with you, but when I was talking earlier about those list of things where I was saying, hey, you know, like when you're in a spiritual conversation and you want to shy away from that, or, you know, uh, you're scared of praying, or, or your, your neighbors and co-workers wouldn't know that you're a Christian. My encouragement, if that, that, that kind of resonated with you, those thoughts resonated with you, is to respond by saying, God, help me. Not by myself, I'm going to stand courageously, I'm going to, you know, do this in my own strength, but with Christ's empowerment, like he did, stand in, courageously in the face of being misunderstood and being rejected. To be the men and the women that God is calling us to be, wherever he's put us. You see, God has placed each of us uniquely into a mission field. You guys go places that I will never go, that Nick will never go, that Tim will never go, or Aaron, any of our leadership, none of us will go into your workplace or into your neighborhood. And God has placed you there to be a witness And yes, you may be misunderstood at times. You may be even rejected. But God can give you strength to stand courageously in the midst of that. The third response, again, to those of you who are Christ followers, is to persevere. This this call is specifically to those of you who are in the midst, right now, of feeling misunderstood and reject, or rejected because you are a Christ follower, not because of other reasons. We're talking specifically today about being a Christ follower. And if you're in that space where you're like, yeah, I'm feeling like misunderstood in my workplace or by my family who, who are not Christians, my encouragement to you is to persevere, to stand strong and to, to continue being encouraged even this morning in the face of persecution. 
Think about Christ. In the next 20 hours of his life, since he said these words that we read, he went on to the cross and he died for all of humanity. He stood strong. He persevered in the midst of being ultimately misunderstood and rejected. And so my encouragement to you today, if that's the place that you find yourself in, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Stand firm. And again, not in your own strength, but in the strength of Jesus. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great example of someone who drew strength from Christ in the midst of adversity. He actually talks about this. Probably my favorite quote of his that I've found is this. He said, it is only because he became like us that we can become like him. Think about that for a second. It is only because he, Jesus, became like us that we can become like him. And what he's talking to is exactly what I just said, that in the power of Jesus, we are able to be the people that God is calling us to be. You see, Bonhoeffer went on to experience a lot more persecution. It escalated more and more as, as being a Christ follower informed his decisions. He experienced being misunderstood and being rejected. And that continued up to an ultimate point where he was put into a prisoner of war camp and then ultimately killed right before the Allied forces took back Germany. He experienced this to an ultimate degree. And I just want to say that to you because in some ways you may think, well, that guy's pretty extreme. You know, he's a hero of the faith. Good for him. But the reality is there was a point in his life where his world didn't look that different from ours. There was a point in his life before the Nazi regime came to power, like he was just going along doing his thing. But God gave him strength when persecution rose to stand and to be the man that God called him to be. So let us not shy away from persecution. Let's look at the examples of faithful men and women who have gone before us. But ultimately, let's look to Christ, realizing that our persecution is for our good and for his glory. If you were to flip over to the next chapter, which is all part of the same conversation that Jesus is having here, what you would find in verse 33 is an incredible promise that I think ties back in exactly with the section we read today. And I want to read it for you as we close. It says this, I have, let, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Not by yourself, but in me. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Let's pray. God, thanks that that's true. That isn't some theoretical idea that you threw out that you have conquered the world, but God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And even in the in the face of being misunderstood or being rejected, God, you're calling us to follow you. First and foremost, to, to follow your example of laying down our lives and saying, yeah, God, our lives are yours. And God, we admit this, this morning together as a group of people, that isn't easy. Would you help us, God, to be the men, to be the women that you're calling us to be? God, if there are some here this morning who need to, for the first time, make a decision to, to lay their life before you, to say, God, here it is, all of it. I pray that you would stir in their heart right now and that they would make that decision, that they would just, not some clever prayer, but just say, God, my life is yours, all of it. 
God, for others who are trying to please the world and at the same time please you, God, I pray that you would give them courage to stand for you and you alone. To be the light of the gospel that you're calling them to be. God, for others who are in the midst of feeling misunderstood and rejected, God, I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them, even in the next few minutes as we're having some time to respond. Thank you, God. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you haven't just promised us persecution, but so much more. Give us joy in that today. Amen.